symphony space in Manhattan on West 95th Street. WBAI presents Dr. Gary Knoll in conversation with Leonard Lopate. You'll also get a sneak preview to Gary's new film. Go to give to WBAI.org to order your ticket or call 516-620-3602 for a ticket to The Conversation Thursday, July 25th at 7 p.m. See you there. Driving Forces, where we focus on the issues in city, state, and national politics that matter to you. You were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane. I'm Jeff Simmons, and I will shortly be joined by my lovely co-host, Celeste Katz, and we're going to have two amazing guests for you today. The guests that we're going to have are Alex Nazarian, author of The Best People, Trump's Cabinet, and The Siege on Washington, and also Alan Sawkin, co-author, along with Aaron Short, who we had on the show a few months ago, of The Method to the Madness, Donald Trump's Ascent as Told by Those Who Were Hired, Fired, Inspired, and Inaugurated. And this book has no anonymous sources, which is good if you've read a lot of the books. They're often replete with anonymous sources, so it's great to be able to have uh, Alan in studio and Alex in studio during this hour. And we're going to do something different today that shakes it up, because Trump is in the news a lot. So as we have the authors, one after the other, here in studio with us, we're going to ask them a few questions, but then we're going to open up the lines, and we want to make sure you have our call-in number, because we're going to take your calls, and they're going to take your calls as well. And that number is 212-209-2877. Again, our listener call-in line is 212-209-2877. We know you like to weigh in on Donald Trump. Whenever we talk about anything going on in Trump world, the lines light up. And I know Catherine, who's with us today, is very excited about the fact that this phone is going to light up uh, this afternoon. So again, our number is 212-209-2877. And uh, also, we'd love to know what you think, not only about the actions he's taken recently regarding immigration, but about what you think about the people who he has hired, because that's really important. And that's one of the focuses of uh, one of the uh, books that we're going to talk about today, The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington with Alex Nazarian. Uh, we're also going to get into his mindset uh, with author Alan Sawkin about, you know, how, you know, the madness that's going on right now. Well, in Trump world, that's kind of part of his strategy. So he'll be able to chat with us a little about that uh, in just a few moments. But I do also, before we get to our guests, I do want to talk about something that's very important to me. I have been a BAI buddy for the last year. When I started volunteering here at this wonderful 60-year-old station, I became a BAI buddy immediately. And I make a recurring donation that takes out a small amount of money out of my, uh, on my credit card every month. Uh, just by being a BAI buddy, you get discounts. Uh, right, Catherine? We get discounts, which, of course, is very important to me because I've got my AAA card, my AARP card, and my BAI buddy. And between the three of them, I get the things that I need. So you should become a BAI buddy. You can go online onto our website at WBAI.org and sign up to make these recurring donations. You'll also get a tote bag, which is going to be very important uh, when uh, when that uh, nickel what is it, a nickel charge that's going to be on every plastic bag takes effect. These tote bags are going to be very important. Or you can call 
3602. So we're going to go to our first guest, someone who I briefly worked with at the New York Post eons ago, Alan Salkin. Welcome here to WBAI. You are aging beautifully. <laughs> Seriously, your skin is glowing. I think we both decided this summer to grow beards, yeah. which is usually what a fall and winter thing. So uh, you folks can't uh, see us, but we're both growing beards here. So let me just tell you a little about Alan, then we're going to get to the questions. Um, Alan is the co-author of The Method to the Madness, Donald Trump's Ascent as Told by Those Who Were Hired, Fired, Inspired, and Inaugurated. And again, has no anonymous sources. Alan covered Donald Trump and Jared Kushner as a reporter for the New York Times and New York Post over two decades. He's reported on media and culture for Vanity Fair, The Washington Post, and New York Magazine. Now, again, we had his co-author Aaron Short on a few months ago, but he didn't reveal everything that was going to be in the book. And that's why it's great that we have Alan in studio with us now. So welcome to Driving Forces, I'm Alan. really happy to be at WBAI. So start off by telling me how you and Aaron came up with the idea for this project. Well, as as often happens, Jeff, uh, people leave the New York Post. Aaron came to me and he said, uh, how the hell do you make a living as a freelance writer? And uh, I said, well, and this is almost two years ago in October. And I said, there's one story because I knew from being at the Post back in the 90s, you know, we all had Trump on speed dial. You could get him in four minutes whenever you wanted him and he'd give you a killer quote. So uh, I said, there's one story. It's Trump. It's still going to be a story by the time we can finish a book. So um, what do you got? And it turned out that Aaron had great material around um, Trump's run for governor, in almost run for governor in 2014. And um, I had not heard a lot about that. So I said, well, why don't you? And I handed him a copy of the ESPN and the Saturday Night Live oral history. And I said, why don't you interview a bunch of people that you... He had great sources around Trump. Stone, Oliver, uh, Oliver, Roger Stone, Sam Nunberg. Um, people always call me Aaron Sorkin. And, and, so. Celeste, and Celeste, by the way, has uh, good uh, Roger Stone stories. Oh, so yeah. Sure well, there's a lot of them, you know. And <laughs> these guys, you know, love them or hate them. They're great characters. And, and maybe they're unfortunate characters. But they're interesting. And they're, they're interesting to talk to. Anyway... Aaron got great quotes. We put together a sample chapter, basically, about... And I was amazed at what we turned up, stuff that had not been reported anywhere. And and, and I'll wrap up by saying they... Uh, I knew that there were people like you and me who had... Um, our media friends who had great Trump stories that had not been interviewed, you know, in the, in the great tradition of just let's let, let's let people talk and see what they got. So I wanted to interview everybody, and then eventually we found the spine of our story, which is... That from 99 up till the escalator in 2015, Donald Trump was quite intentional about what he was doing. And that's what we found ultimately. And as far as the people getting them to talk, I've read a number of the Trump books. A lot of people would prefer to be anonymous. How do you get them to open up and attach their names to this? I think I think it's that we're not telling a story about trying to justify drowning babies at the border. Um and it's it's a story about, and it's a nonpartisan story about how this guy got himself in position to be elected, even though there was probably out there definitely was outside help. Um, the story, the, the forgive me, the genius of of being able to be a guy like him with all of his liabilities and how he and he knew he had them, and so I think people. Even even people like Al Sharpton uh, and uh, Donnie Deutsch, who are not politically on the same side as him, 
praise his sort of brilliance at staying on brand and getting this done. So I think we create we, we tell a story that is people are able to talk about without feeling like they're stepping into, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the Twitter sphere with their uh, genitals exposed. And as you reported this, where, <laughs> as you reported this, were there, you know, certain insights that you never had before that came to light that you that actually impressed you about how strategic he was? Well, yeah, I mean, there's so much about how how many people were a part of of this for so long that were that he was having meetings all along, all the way since '99. Um, you know, and I guess when you look at, you know, Ross Perot just died, Lee Iacocca just died, and both of these people figure into the persona of, of who Trump was. I'll tell you the thing that surprised me the most. Um, Steve Bannon told us this during a crazy interview he gave us while, you know, screaming at his assistant to bring him more Red Bulls at nine in the morning. Um, you know, red face. It's like, please don't have a heart attack in the middle of the interview. Um and he told us that Trump was a Jungian scholar, that he had been told this by um, by a ghostwriter who had worked on Trump's 2012 book, which he wrote thinking he might run in 2012, by the way, um, uh, making, uh, making America number one again. He hadn't come up with great yet. Um, <laughs> he was refining the He was message. refining it, which is what he does, you know? Fake news, two words, beautiful. I have to make this aside because I keep meaning to bring this up in interviews. There's this th- this moment when Trump was giving a press conference and he, for some reason, Abe Lincoln came up. I think because there was a lot of African-American school children and he wanted to point out that, well, Abe Lincoln's a Republican, so we're not all, you know. So he said, honest Abe, honest Abe. I wonder how honest he really was. And then he just moves on from that because he was testing the branding of it. Hmm. You know, what a great brand Honest Abe was. That that has lasted more than a century. So anyway, that's what Trump... So the Young thing turned out, if you find... Look in one of his books, there's a chapter about read Carl Young. It was ghostwritten with somebody else, but according to that chapter, Trump suggests we all read Carl Young in order to refine our trust of our own intuition. And that's what Trump does. He when you, When you read our book and then you see what he's doing in the real world... I actually now understand what he's doing. So, uh, you know, right before we started the show, I always check Twitter to see what's trending at the last moment. And I saw that there, uh, there was something about Paul Ryan, uh, you know, about uh, assessing uh, Trump, uh, that he didn't know much. And I'm curious, in each book, there are certain revelations that stick. What are some of the takeaways? What are people going to remember most and think about most as they watch Trump and hear him on television after reading your book? Because how should they look at him when they see him holding a rally and speaking? Um, well, there's this the, the short, silly things, and then there's the long view, which is the long view is this guy did not decide, like, on one morning in the summer of 2015 to ride down the escalator and then prank everybody in the debates. He did not do that. That is not what happened. What happened? What happened was way back to an interview with Rona Barrett the the celebrity reporter in 82 Trump was asked about do you might you want to run for president one day and he didn't say no and he said basically it'd be a mean life and it's hard to imagine a guy with um you know who th- thinks weird things and doesn't have the most beautiful smile 
and maybe even doesn't look like what he meant was doesn't have the hair of Reagan and all that and the magnetism uh, could actually win. And when you look at the arc since then and going back to 99 when he almost ran for the Reform Party to how serious he was having meetings with people like Dick Morris who's going to be on a panel of ours at the Powerhouse Arena on Monday night. I was going to ask you what was coming up. But yeah, okay. <laughs> that and, and uh, Sam Nunberg and Jessica Proud and some Apprentice contestants. And it's going to be a great night at the Powerhouse Monday night at uh, 7 p.m. But sorry, I, and I'll wrap oh, no, up. Keep going. I'll wrap up. But, and I'll just say um, that when you look at all of these almost runs uh, that were people, the press decided this was just pranks by Trump and they dismissed them. And, and now that he ran and he won, nobody except for us seems willing to go back and say, maybe those weren't pranks. Maybe those were moments where Trump said, the time is not yet right, as Lenin said in his book. Um, but in 2016, it was right. And the two other things people are talking about is the fact that we have the bartender who served him alcohol and that he used the N-word in, in explaining why he wasn't going to hire a black guy as the winner of season one of The Apprentice. We got the producer who heard it. On the record. On the record, by name. We have 114 named sources. There are no anonymous sources in the book. And you also reveal that he's a bad tipper. Well, according to this one waitress, I've also heard stories of his generosity. But the, the, some of the stories about his generosity usually involve he's staying in a hotel that maybe somebody else is paying for. And he puts like a feast for like 100 people on the room tab. Okay, so I'm going to come to one other question uh, and then open up the lines when I remind our listeners that the number to call is 212-209-2877. This is Jeff Simmons on WBAI. I am on with Alan Salkin, co-author of The Method to the Madness, Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's Ascent as told by those who were hired, fired, inspired, and inaugurated. So uh, how did The Apprentice prepare him to uh, to become president? Well... It prepared him in that he learned even more about television and he learned about teasers. You know, you'll find out who I'm firing and you'll find out who I'm hiring for defense secretary. Just tune in tomorrow. Um, and then at the same time, it also prepared America for him. That in, was really more important. It took Trump, who we as New Yorkers knew, and for all of his glory and problems, and it made him into this decisive leader in this beautiful boardroom, which was not the real boardroom from um, Trump Tower. The real place is grubby, like a lot of the insides of offices in New York, beautiful towers. And uh, and it made him look like he was the man who could make great decisions. And so um, that's what it made him into a character that seemed like he could be president. So I believe we have a caller on the line. Uh, welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind? Hey, dude. My name is Charlie. How are you doing? Hi, Charlie. How are you? Welcome Hi. to WBAI. You know, well, thank you. Uh, you know, I think there's a saying, you get the government you deserve. I think there may be a grain of truth in that. I think Donald Trump is in the White House right now because we don't have a genuine progressive movement in this country to challenge any of his ideas. You know, we have identity politics. We have black people blaming white men, scapegoating white men. Uh, the women's lib uh, movement is over there doing the same thing. And you know what? Trump loves it. I think behind closed doors, uh, those people love identity politics because it serves them. I, uh, thanks for, for that comment. And I, I think that 
Um, what one of the things we chronicle in the book is the way that Trump um, found a movement. And that was one of the things that made this time right. There was this thing that had started, uh, obviously, in the, in the Tea Party. Well, where did this movement come from? The Tea Party and, and the alt-right and all those people. And look, you're, the point that you're, I'm saying is that that same pool of people who might have been uh, Sanders followers and, and the, you know, are being swayed by this populism that the alt-right presents. I mean, I'm, I'm not the leading scholar of this stuff, but clearly Trump saw that there were people who felt like they weren't connected and he honed a message to appeal to them. And I think that's what you're seeing in the Democratic debates now. There's other people trying to say Trump is not actually doing what you want. Try this other stuff. Thank you so much for giving a call to WBAI, Charlie. So, Alan, um, you know, what I find interesting is that every time I'll turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News and I'm watching, I am fascinated by Trump. I am fascinated by you know, how he speaks. I'm not saying, you know, whether I agree or disagree, right. but how he speaks, how he riles up the crowd. And, you know, where does this all go back to? Now, I haven't been able to get a chance to read The Methods of the Madness yet. And I'm curious if you go back into, like, even earlier than the interview that you mentioned when he didn't answer the question about, you know, running for president. Um, you know, where does this come from in his life? Well, I, I mean, I think it comes from being raised with the New York City tabloids. I think that he, underst he understood better than, you know, an entry-level uh, reporter, a cub reporter would, that conflict makes stories. And celebrities attacking celebrities make stories. So, um, you know, when we first were talking about the book and pitching it to publishers, uh, a lot of them said, well, by the time this book comes out, Trump won't even be president anymore. He'll be impeached. Maybe your next guest had the same issue. But, you know, is, is he nodding? Is he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, will, will Trump be impeached or will he didn't really want to be president? He just wants to, you know, get some attention. He's going to realize, remember this? He's going to realize it's hard and he doesn't want to do it. So I think if you look at the attacks he made on Rosie O'Donnell um, that were, you know, a lot of people did not stand up against that kind of misogyny, the way he was brutally, you know, uh, attacking her on in social media and on television appearances. It was great TV. Producers love it. One celebrity attacking another. So Trump can keep us spellbound. He is a master. He loves the media. Oh, no, I know that, too. I mean, look, you, I'm sure you remember yeah. the woman who always answered the phone we called. Ro Norma. Ro Norm it was Norma in Norma, the 90s, and that uh, became Rona, Rona later. I dealt with Rona. Yeah. So one of the other challenges when you're putting together a book like this is you said 114, was it? Uh, over 100 people. Yes. Uh, that were telling, you know, the story, many different versions. I'm curious how you deal with or reconcile the contradictions and how people remembered events. Well, this is a great thing about an oral history, which is basically where we stack one quote after another in order to move the narrative forward. And we just have a little bit of um, narration on our part to make sure you know where you are in time. Let them let disagree about what happens. But I found, and my previous book was about the Food Network, you know, the television channel. And you really find that if you interview enough people it there's only one path through it that the only eventually the logic weighs out well if what this person's saying is true then there's no way that that next thing could have happened 
And so you're like, well, what is the only way the next, well, what this other guy said does explain it? Because you have enough things you know, and then the things that don't make sense just have to be cast aside. But there's other times when you're, for instance, there's a great section uh, early on where we have all these Democrats who gave, or Trump gave money to saying, well, Trump was a Democrat, you know, he, he uh, Bob Torricelli, Joe Lieberman, Andrew Stein, um, and then there's all these Republicans saying, well, Trump was a Republican all along, and he loved us. The truth was he was a Republican all along. His father was a Republican. This is what Roger Stone told us. Um, he gave money to Democrats because uh, he had building projects in their districts and he needed their approval, and that is all it was. And this is one of the reasons he has so much disdain for politicians. You give a politician five grand and they act like, you know, you just gave them massages for life. It's an, it's they're cheap, and he and for a guy like him who had access to money, they were especially cheap. So as we're uh, uh, talking, I want to remind our listeners the call in number is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. I'm on with Alan Salkin, author of The Method to the Madness. We're talking about Donald Trump. Let us know what questions you've got for Alan. What uh, what he can reveal that's in the book. But I encourage you to get the book. Who's the publisher? It's a uh, it's an imprint called All Points, which is part of St. Martin's and Macmillan. And you can get it through Amazon and all the ways, all the ways. So uh, how can people learn? And more? There's, I, I'm saying something else is a great. I haven't said this enough too. there's a great audio book since people are radio listeners. Um, is it your voice? It's actually they hired actors and it's it's almost like a radio play. But you've We've got, got a good radio voice. I, I, I'm, it sounds great in my ears right now. It's true. I talk like this. No. Um, <laughs> but uh I do some of it. Aaron does some of it. Um, we have a Trump impersonator. It's not a comedy, but there's actors doing all the different voices, and it's really a, a, an extraordinary audiobook. So try that version too. You know, when people hear the title "The Method to the Madness," if they then say to you, "What, what, what is Trump's method to his madness?" How do you respond? There's just a lot of. I'll tell you that the best to me, the metaphor, the simplest one is he's like a boxer. He he knows how to hit people low he knows how to evade them he knows how to uh you know do what the you know punch on the other side where the referee is watching um he softens people up in the early rounds by hitting them to the body and then he goes for the knockout punch later he tests his opponents he sees what's going to work he sees what's affecting them and annoying them um and you know whether or not he's the he's a con man if he is a con man he is one of the greatest con men who ever lived. Look what he's achieved. Did you try to talk to him for this? Yeah, yeah. And I interviewed him back in the 90s. Um, but uh, we tried. I had We sent emails and, and calls to people. I know I do know people who work in the White House. I've written about them. Uh, we just didn't land an interview. But, you know, the good thing is he gave so many interviews over this period that we just we, his voice is all through it. That's why we can have an impersonator doing his voice. His voice is all here during, you know, uh, contemporaneous uh, clips and things. So in a way, we didn't really need him. So we've got another caller on the line. Uh, you're on WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind? My name is Jeffrey. Hi, Jeffrey. Uh, good to be here with you all. Uh, when you talk about Aaron Sorkin, is this the no. famous Aaron Sorkin that does the um, television programs? I love it. Every time any radio person interviews me, they go, Alan Sork. No, wait, no, it's not. That's, I know your name. Yeah, that's Aaron Sorkin, and he's great. Okay. And someday I'm going to okay. hang out with him, and we're going to laugh about all this. But he's more famous there than me. Go. Whatever. There you go. 
Well, uh, I just would like to say that uh, your title says it all, Method to the Madness, because it's exactly what uh, it, it really describes uh, what's going on as far as this administration is concerned. Um, especially if you take a look at, uh, you do the comparison with uh, George Bush, from George Bush to um, President Barack Obama, uh, and then come into uh, the presidency of Donald Trump. It's like he just turned the whole thing, it's like this is madness. But there's a method to it because uh, nothing, um, nobody can, he's like a, a Teflon Don, that's who he is, Teflon Donald Trump. Uh, and I think that what he, his, his, the, the machine that he has that works with him, because he's not necessarily the brightest uh, when it comes to, you know, speaking, he, he says what he needs to say, but then when he says it, you go, huh? Yeah, huh? When, when you actually look at the transcripts, it's hard to figure out what he was talking about, but if you hear him... It, it makes a certain a certain sense. And as far as being the Teflon Don, you know, he said it himself. He could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And there is something almost metaphysical about how he seems to get away with everything. Um, and I, I, I sort of ascribe it back to his childhood. Who was, his preacher was um, Norman Vincent Peale, the, the guy that extolled the power of positive thinking. And when you listen to some of Trump's quotes, I'm doing a story for LA Magazine that's going to come out soon and I uh, watched the L.A. season of The Apprentice, and Trump is watching a guy who's in a, a bathing suit, a male model. And he says, I could wear that bathing suit. I have a great body. I really do. I have a great, great body. It's like It sounds like somebody like trying to convince themselves. <laughs> so we've got just about a, a few minutes left, Alan, and I want to um, you know, talk just about the upcoming campaign. So are you seeing the seeds for this campaign? Is he, you know, Do you feel like we're, you're... He's strategizing already based on, you know, the events he's having and, you know, give a little insight into that. I think he is sizing up who his opponent might be. And he in his, you know, with over cheeseburgers and big and loud televisions in the West Wing is um, thinking about like a fighter would who watches other fighters. How would I beat them? What would I do? And it's interesting when you see he hasn't really attached attacked Kamala. And that's because I don't think he's figured out exactly how he would attack her. He will figure it out if she's the... I'm just, I'm, I have no idea that she's going to be the nominee. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, he's already figured out, mm -hmm. which he may have to change. Mm -hmm. You know, Pocahontas may not work. Um, but you, he's sizing them up. He is working on it. You know, his, his initial sort of campaign launch a, a few weeks ago was pretty unimpressive. He didn't seem to have a, a pointed attack. But um, I think he will do as he's done. He has, there's a method to the madness. He will find his applause lines. He will test them out. He will see. He will you know, get his sense of the crowd, and he will be formidable. So I purposely have not talked about his administration. We're going to save that for the next guest. Uh, I do want to find out from you, Alan Sawkin, making sure I pronounce it yes, well enough Salkin. so there's no confusion. Um, where you have book readings coming up, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, we're, thank you. We're uh, I'm gonna, actually going to be in Sag Harbor, uh, New York, uh, Saturday at 5 p.m. at Canio's Bookstore. Please come by. I've heard that Ed Cox, the former head of the uh, state Republicans, will be there. And there's a good burger place a few doors yes, down there, from it's, that. Uh, the yeah, LT? Yeah, the, uh, Laurent Torrendel has, has oh, yeah. moved out there. I write about food, too. Uh, the milkshakes are very good. 
Um, and then uh, the um, and then Monday, the really big event is at Powerhouse Books in Brooklyn in, in Dumbo. We're going to have Sam Nunberg, and, uh, who is his advisor, very close advisor, Surya Yala Manchili, who was an apprentice can- candidate. We're going to have Elizabeth Spires, who was the editor of The Observer under Jared Kushner, and a bunch of others. It's gonna, and it's going to be actually taped for C-SPAN TV. So. And what's so interesting, as we hear from some of the uh, apprentice contestants, I am sure my instinct is that he, if this gets reported on, he is not going to take this lightly because... I want him will. to tweet. Please tweet. <laughs> please tweet hate. Please tweet love. It will help us sell books. And then we're also going to appear in, the, in uh, Philadelphia next Tuesday at the Pen and Pencil Club in Washington, D.C. on Thursday at a place called the Pearl Street Warehouse. And then in Los Angeles at uh, the, the Ace Hotel downtown L.A. and then some other California appearances. So great. thank you. Alan, so thank great you so much. Here. Name of the book again? The Method to the Madness, Donald Trump's Ascent, as told by those who were hired, fired, inspired, and inaugurated. And your co-author? Is Aaron Short. Making sure we give him a shout out there. And how can people follow you? Where should they go? Where Everything, they all my social is Alan Salkin, A-L-L-E-N, A-L-L-E-N, S-A-L-K-I-N, Alan Salkin, and there's alansalkin.com. So please, and uh, I'd love to hear comments about this interview, too. Alan, thank you so much for joining me in studio. Thanks. We're going to bring on our next guest in a few moments. I'm going to introduce him. You are welcome to stay and hang out if you'd like. I would. Uh, but we need to make sure we give him his say. Uh, Alex, if you want to head up over to the uh, mic over here. Uh, wanted to bring on our next guest. Uh, as I said, we have two authors today. Uh, our next guest is Alex Nazarian, author of The Best People, Trump's Cabinet, and The Siege on Washington. So... Uh, a little talk, a little about uh, Alex. Should I call you Alex or Alexander? What do you well, prefer? Alex is fine. Thank Alex. you. Alex, national affairs correspondent for Yahoo News, author of the uh, the book that I just mentioned by Hachette. Hachette? Hachette. Books offers an in-depth examination of the entire Trump administration. Takes readers not only into the drama of the West Wing, but also that of the cabinet and the outer reaches of the federal bureaucracy that its members oversee, where countless consequential decisions are being made entirely, daily, entirely out of public view. Welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm sorry Celeste isn't here yet. I know she wanted to see you in studio. Hopefully uh, she's okay. Uh, But she also had a lot of good questions. So as much as I want to get to my questions, I really want to do some of hers because she's much more eloquent than I am. Start at the beginning. There are a lot of books about politics. And for the past few years, a lot of them have been about Trump. Why did you want to jump into a subject area where the market is, frankly, very saturated? There have been a couple of books about Trump. I did notice that as I wrote my own. But I, I thought there were a couple of reasons that I thought that I could do a book that was different than others. Frankly, I thought a lot of the there were some there have been some excellent books about Trump, but some of them it felt to me like they lacked the depth of reporting uh, in the and also some of them lack reporting and others seem to lack insight, which is to say they, there was a lot of gossip and West Wing intrigue and who doesn't like that. Um, but that's not all that's happening in the administration. Uh, Trump's tweets, his, um, you know, his, his, um, his sort of his, dip, his feuds, his made for TV feuds, they don't constitute the whole of his administration. So I thought there was a, bro- a book that was at once broader and deeper that could be done and that that book could explain not just who Trump was or what he did, 
but could actually explain what his administration was doing because he is the chief executive as you know as he sort of constantly reminds us of a vast federal bureaucracy that's making decisions that have uh, enormous uh, consequential impact on everyday Americans' lives, people who don't live in New York or D.C. and follow every minute political development, people who need, uh, who may need their loans forgiven because they went to a college that made promises it couldn't keep, people who need subsidies for um, public housing, people who don't want to have, you know, coastal cities disappear because of global warming. And he is making, even today on a day where we may be discussing, for example, his friendship with certain right-wing media figures, which mm -hmm. is, of course, mm -hmm. an important thing, and it is it should be troubling to people that a president would invite people with deeply disturbing views to the White House. But that's, even as he's doing that and uh, musing about the First Amendment, his government is executing his vision and the vision of the conservative movement quite capably and without, with some coverage. There are excellent reporters at newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, some of my, uh, my colleagues at Yahoo News, um, my peers at Politico. They're doing great work. And, and I don't mean to, to say that, that the administration is not getting the coverage it deserves. It, it's just that... Trump and the people around him understand that um, we have only so much ability to pay attention. We have only so much outrage. These are not um, endlessly; these are not these are finite resources. And if they are taxed by Trump himself, then I do think uh, that allows his administration to do things uh, without public notice. And that, that's I think that's dangerous. So. I almost get the sense that you see the Trump campaign versus the Trump presidency as a kind of bait and switch. Uh, no politician delivers everything they promise, of course, but in your writing, you drill down into the contrast between, say, the ideas pushed by Steve Bannon, who set the almost revolutionary tone during 2016, versus what we've actually seen going on in Trump's cabinet. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. Um, what I think... I, I, I think it is fair to hold the leader of the free world to the promises he makes, and I would, I would expect to do the same. I, I will do the same, and I hope my uh, other journalists will, whoever the next president is after Trump, whether it's you know, Nikki Haley or Kamala Harris, uh, you know, I, it's, it's any president who says, I will do X, we should then interrogate, have you done it? If you haven't, why not? Trump po promised a populist, a slimmed down populist sort of nationalist government. And if he had executed on that, I actually think he would be very difficult to defeat. What we have instead is more or less the program of, of conservative organizations like Heritage Foundation, Federalist Society, and others executed, actually I would say quite capably. So, which is why, and I, I recently did an event with uh, Rick Wilson, who's a never-Trumper, um, and he's hilarious, and he has a, a book called um, Everything Trump Touches Dies, uh, which is quite funny. But, but my question to Rick, and it's my question to the other never-Trumpers, is if I just gave you a generic president who appointed two Supreme Court justices, conservative Supreme Court justices, who 
got uh, the U.S. out of the Iran deal, out of the Paris Accords, wouldn't you be absolutely thrilled? Inevitably, the answer is yes. So what is it that they don't like about Trump? I actually don't, I don't un entirely understand the never-Trumper position. Well, yes, he's not, he, I mean, what, he lacks the, the uh, uh, sort of the eloquence of George W. Bush? I mean, what, what, what's missing? Um, I actually think he has, he has accomplished conservative goals. They're just not the goals of the Trump base. So obviously your title is an echo of uh, Trump himself and uh, ironic from your point of view, the best people. What are some of the most egregious examples that you highlight when it comes to screw-ups by members of Trump's inner circle? I'll, um, well, well, look, I mean, I, well, I'll tell you, I'll, there, there's the story that I don't think was reported before and that to me... Um, to me, pretty indicative of, of how these people roll. And it's uh, during the mor murder boards for, um, for the confirmation hearings, murder boards are preparation sessions. Um, well, you know, uh, they set the tr Trump transition, set up these sort of Senate hearing rooms, or, or they set up a room to look like a Senate hearing room, and they encourage nominees to bring their families for their pre prep sessions, for the murder boards, because that's what it would be like in real life. Your family would be sitting there and you'd be asked questions that could be potentially difficult or embarrassing. So Wilbur Ross, uh, and this is this was from uh, I, I heard this from a very I mean this this is this is a, a solid story. You know, Wilbur Ross comes with his wife and a, sort of a younger gentleman. And when someone at the Trump transition asks who the younger gentleman is, it turns out he's Wilbur Ross's tennis pro. He has a tennis game later that day, and he just thought it made sense to bring his tennis pro to his, uh, you know, preparation session to be the commerce secretary. And I think that's how, more or less how a lot of them treat the federal government, not as a serious thing, but as something you might do, you might get out of the way before you go play tennis or, or golf. Um, so it, they're they're just so a lot of the. The the Mnuchins, the Wilbur Rosses, the um, the Scott Pruitts, they saw government as either you know the way to enrich themselves or just sort of as a. They certainly didn't see it in this sense of public service in the way that um, m most other cabinet members. Conservative, Republican or Democratic would have in ages past. So then, why do you think these these are the kind of people that he cho he chooses to hire? I think he, I think he had no idea whom he was hiring, and I think he has, he still has no idea whom he hired. And that was clear when I spoke to him in the Oval Office. He had a sheet. He had he had to have a sheet with the names of his um, cabinet members, and he looked at the sheet and he said, you know. Oh, he's terrific. She's great. Oh, he's great. She's terrific. He clearly wasn't familiar with who they were and what they did. I mean, and that's troubling because not only are they taking consequential actions, there is, and I think this is an important point, there is a deep state, right? And But what I mean by that is not a deep state of unelected bureaucrats who want to take down Trump. It's conservative functionaries some of them very smart, very capable, who've been appointed to the deputy positions, the assistant, um, to you know, assistant secretary positions, and these are people who know how the levers of government work. 
they are not as sort of comically incompetent as, uh, as say, Scott Pruitt or Ben Carson. They're, they're actually, some of them are actually quite capable officials. They are just able to work very efficiently, very ruthlessly on behalf of corporations, on behalf of conservative activists. And so in a sense, it's not the Betsy DeVos that we have to be worried about. It's not, uh, you know, Carson. It's the people under them who are not, whom, who, who are sort of, who, who are Washington. I would say that a lot of these people are Washington insiders of the very kind Trump said he would never hire. But of course, whom was he going to hire? It's not like there's a. It's not like there was a big coterie of sort of experts around Trump. So I want to let our listeners know the phone lines are open. The number is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. You're listening to WBAI. Uh, 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons of Driving Forces. I am on right now with Alex Nazarian, author of The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington. Uh, We're talking about Donald Trump. Give us a call at 212-209-2877. Let us know. Well, first of all, if you've got questions, Alex is here. So give us a call uh, and ask those questions. But Give us your opinion on Trump's cabinet. If you think he's made any good choices, if you disagree with his choices, let us know why. I see the phones are starting to ring already. Um, there's been a, there's been tons of uh, reporting on the performance and conduct of the people put uh, that Trump has put in charge. I mean, think about this week and what has just gone on with Jeffrey Epstein. Talk a little about that and your reaction. Right. So one of the questions that I've gotten is, did they not vet? Did they not vet Alex Acosta, Labor Secretary, who, as a, a federal prosecutor, seemed to give an exceptionally lenient deal to se- uh, sex predator Jeffrey Epstein? That's not. That's not quite it. It's not that they didn't vet him. Did somebody on that vetting in that transition know that Acosta had been part of this deal? Well, it was public knowledge. Uh, it's not like it's, it's not like that part of it was secret. It's just the vetting didn't matter. Right? In a good... Now remember, Trump is supposed to be an exceptionally capable manager. And in a good, I'm not a management guru, but I know if I'm a if I'm a sort of lower-ranked official and I find a red flag, in a good system, I can bring that dossier right to the boss or make sure it gets to him or her and say, hey, this guy, Acosta, we, you know, we, we might want to steer clear because eventually this is going to come out about Jeffrey Epstein and we stay away. You know this guy, Scott Pruitt, he, had, he was very cozy with lobbyists and corporate donors in Oklahoma. If we hire him to head the EPA, we might get in trouble because he's most likely going to do that again. Now, people did know these things. It's just that that nothing happened to that knowledge. And the other thing that I think is important to understand is, again, Trump didn't have his own people. So if someone told him to hire Ryan Zinke, right? Ryan Zinke was a favorite of Breitbart News. He was Montana congressman. So suddenly Ryan Zinke's the interior secretary. He had a nice, Ryan had a nice conversation with Donald Trump Jr. on the phone. That's all, that's all it took. And then, no. So no wonder these people cause tr- Trump scandals. They're not loyal to Trump. They're not loyal to his cause. They're just loyal to themselves. So in a sense, I see Trump as a kind of tragic figure. Which isn't to say that I supported his populist ideals or I, I'm I'm 
sort of, I try to be apolitical. I just see him undone as much by his own bad impulses as uh, by his own bad impulses, but also by the people around him who are, who are really, some of them are quite venal. So we've got a caller. Uh, welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind? My name is Kirk. Can I just have a quick comment? I'll let the, uh, let the audience um, chime in. Could you stop using the term leader of the free world? Because it's not only um, disrespectful to the rest of the nations of the world, it's not true, and it bears arrogance, uh, which is one of the serious problems of this nation to begin with. Um, so that's pretty much my comment. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling WBAI. Uh, from your research, did he hire anyone that is the best person that you f that you believe was a very good hire? <sighs> Awkward silence. Um, no, look, yes, he did. I, I think j the best move he made was getting rid of Ryan's Priebus, who who was a very very poor choice for a chief of staff, and bringing in John Kelly. John Kelly brought in Kirsten Nielsen, who has been rightly criticized for the border policy as head of as DHS secretary, but actually was quite good in the chief of staff suite. Um, Rob Porter also did a lot of good work before he was undone by really gruesome allegations of domestic assault. Um, and then there was there were a couple other people in that suite who did good work. And I know that they one of the reasons you know that they did work is they, they weren't liked by the RNC crowd in the West Wing. The, the, it seemed to me the more people around Reince and Sean Spicer didn't like someone, the more that person was likely effective at actually trying to turn the place into a functioning White House. But look, I mean, Ke even Kelly by the end, you know, he was defending, I mean, he was making comments about the Civil War and slavery that seemed to many people, and rightly so, out of bounds. So um, obviously, uh, again, we mentioned Nielsen Porter, both of, the, both of them have faced downfalls of their own. So it's very, it, I mean, after that, who would want to go work for this administration if you really were one of the best people? Oh, we've got another caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what is on your mind? Hi. Hi, my name is Celeste, and I'm calling from Manhattan. Welcome to the show, Celeste. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I've always wanted to be on WBAI. And what's your question? Uh, my question is, uh, well, first of all, will you ever forgive me? But <laughs> secondly, uh, for the... Uh, for the guest, um, do you think that there is? Uh, do you think that there is any way, any reasonable way, that things change in the White House that this will no longer be uh, a fair, a fair characterization of the White House? Like, what would, would you simply have to have a different president? Like, is there any way that um, this sort of I don't know, this sort of merry-go-round comes to a stop and that people have, can develop a sense of confidence that, um, that the president is capable of choosing advisors who are, are competent and ethical, uh, or is that just a pipe dream? It is a 
It is a it is a pipe dream, I think. Uh, and thank you for your call and your question, Celeste. Uh, I don't see that happening at this point because, as I mentioned before, it, so many people have come into this White House and seen their reputations. Or, or this administration has seen their reputations destroyed, maybe because they weren't ready for prime time, maybe because they um, they made mistakes once they got there for for a number of reasons. Maybe because something came out that should have come out before. It just seems it seems like going into this administration is kind of like going into the Chernobyl exclusion zone. You you might come out al- uh, alive, but the chances are not so good. So why would you go? What would be your impetus? Is it a kind of heroism? Well, look, you know, look, you know, Jim Mattis tried that and then he eventually left in exasperation. He would actually be one of the legitimately, probably the single best hire Trump made would be Jim Mattis, um, who's a uh, Pentagon chief. But, but at this point, uh, there is no evidence of, I don't, I don't know of any serious Republicans in Washington who are itching to get back to get into this administration right now, especially as it prepares for what's going to be a bruising uh, reelection fight. After that, I think uh, if he wins again, which which I suspect he will, uh, I, I I think uh, it will be very difficult uh, to attract good people. I, be- I believe we had a few heads shaking with a comment you had just made. Oh, wait, we have a surprise guest who wanted to make a comment. I'm still here, but, <laughs> I, you know, my writing partner thinks Trump will likely win as well, Aaron Short. But I think, to me, I look at it, he threaded the needle last time. I just don't, he didn't actually get more votes. I just don't know that those exact votes will fall the exact same way. That's just how I look at it. But he's pretty brilliant, and that's what our book is about. And... um We'll see. Maybe we should place a wager. <laughs> a membership to Mar-a-Lago for one year? Oh, that's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get a copy of my book. I'll get a copy of your book. <laughs> so uh, we the time for a, uh, another call or two. Our number is 212-209-2877. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, extensive reporting uh, that qu- about the that questions the performance and conduct of the people that Trump has put in charge. What do you want to say to Americans who've been sick of Washington for a long time if they see this as business as usual? This is not business as usual. People like Scott Pruitt are just Ryan Zinke, Betsy DeVos. These are, this is not Washington. Look, I don't, I don't blame people who are fed up with Washington. I live there, and I'm pretty fed up with it, too, a lot of days. I also think there are a lot of really noble civil servants who understand how to do their jobs apolitically. And there are even some people who are political who understand what it means to serve the whole public, even people you don't agree with. So, you know, some, someone like Scott Pruitt using sirens to get to a fancy restaurant or looking for a used mattress from the Trump Hotel, God only knows why, that's not <laughs> normal. That's not, there was no Washington in which that was normal, uh, which is why he's gone. I'm not saying that him leaving is a sign that this administration has turned a corner. It hasn't. I'm just saying that this. most people I know in Washington think this is highly abnormal, including Republicans. We've got another caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What is your name and where are you from and what's on your mind? I'm calling about the Electoral College. What's going to happen on Election Day when the Democrats win by 5 million votes? 
but they still lose the election to the Electoral College. Well, we know what's going to happen. The, if that if that is the in fact what happens, well, the, that's what happened last time. Well, I think it was uh, three, three million, million votes. Three, well, then we know that that now it's going to be five. If that happens, Trump will will be uh, uh, you well, know this re-elected. is the problem. We're talking about a lot of minutia and this one and this one and this one, but we're not talking about the issue. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI. We've got another caller on the line. Hi, what's your name and where are you from? Hi, welcome to WBAI. Hi. As far as Trump's cabinet choices, I feel that they're made by his donors, that he doesn't really uh, have any loyalty, loyalty to them. For instance, Bolton. Bolton has really been humiliated by him sending him off to to, uh, Manchuria or wherever instead of being where the action is. And he doesn't listen to him about Venezuela or anything. But in his second term, I think we'll see a different thing. He won't have to be loyal to his donors. And if he didn't give them the choices of cabinet, uh, why else would uh, they be donors to him? Both parties really didn't like him. Right. Well, I think I think that's a really uh, an apt diagnosis. Certainly, you know how did how did Trump know of Scott Pruitt? Well, because Bob Murray of Murray Energy said, "I like this guy." Koch brothers liked him, so Scott Pruitt's the head of the EPA. Um, you know, DeVos what is a the DeVos family is a major major Michigan Republican family. So how does Betsy DeVos, who has less experience with public schools than I do with professional football, uh, how does which I I have none, uh, how does she become education secretary again? You know, Michigan is a critical state. She's a billionaire. Her husband is a billionaire. So there you go. And yes, I believe, you know, there could be some outlandish cabinet choices if he has a second term because then he won't be beholden to anyone. And the thing that matters to him most is the victory, that he gets that victory. It's not what happens after the victory. So we're going to have to wrap up in about we're going to have to wrap up in about another minute. I believe we have one more call. OK, we're going to take one more call, though, and then uh, uh, find uh, complete the show. No other one. OK, hung up. So I got to get I get to ask you the good question, which is tell us all what I asked Alan. What is on the horizon for you? Talk about book readings. Where can people go see you and where can they get get the book? Well, uh, hopefully you can get the book at your local bookstore. You can read my work at Yahoo News, um, which uh, where I'm a national correspondent based on based in Washington. And I report on um, report on the agencies. I report on um, on the White House a little bit. I report on the court. So I try to I try to make my daily reporting reflect a lot of the interests in this a lot of the themes in this book which have to do with the consequential decisions this administration is making the decisions that I think are going to influence and often harm the lives of normal people. So Alex Nazarian, author of The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington. Thanks for joining me in studio today. I also want to thank Alan Salkin for hanging out as well, co-author with Aaron Short of The Method to the Madness. Thanks for being here. It's great. Thank you. I want to thank Catherine for juggling those calls for me today and stepping in. And uh, also my co-host Celeste texted me. She apologized. She's under the weather, so I'm sorry uh, she couldn't be here today. I know she wanted to be here with both of you, and we were all looking to see if that caller Celeste was our 
actual Celeste. Well, I got to come back. Before. Happy to come so, back. So we'd love to have you back in the studio again. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to Driving Forces. I look forward to seeing you, hearing from you again next week. Have a great day. Filibustered and unfiltered, the Mueller Report on WBAI from 11 to 2 p.m. on Sundays. The 24-hour live reading of the entire Mueller Report was recorded in June when American citizens of all ages, backgrounds, and political persuasions gathered at The Ark, a sprawling music and performance venue in Long Island City, to listen communally as locals and celebrities read the report. By early to mid-2016, IRA operations included supporting the Trump campaign and disparaging candidate Hillary Clinton. Tune in to what Breitbart called the single most boring and pointless way to waste your time. An event producer Jackson Gay said it's really just about our responsibility as American citizens to read this thing that we paid for and decide for yourself. Filibustered and unfiltered, the Mueller Report, Sundays from 11 to 1 p.m. right here over listener-sponsored non-commercial Pacifica Radio, WBAI, New York. This year, let's go green. To save money in trees, the local station board election will use electronic ballots. Members in need of a paper ballot can leave a voicemail for the election supervisor at 510-854-9663 with their name, address, and telephone number. We are missing emails for many members. Please help by visiting elections.pacifica.org and filling out a ballot request form, including the email to which you would like us to send you your ballot. E-ballots will be issued to all members with a valid email on file. Members missing emails will be sent their voter ID and password hidden beneath a scratch-off on a postcard. Ballots go out to all eligible members August 15, 2019. You are listening to 99.5 FM WBAI in New York, New York, and online at WBAI.org. Join WBAI on Thursday, July 25th for an evening with Gary Null, hosted by Leonard Lopate. This is at Symphony Space in Manhattan on West 95th Street. 
Leonard will interview Gary about his work, his research, and his contributions to WBAI over the years. That's a $35 contribution to listener-sponsored WBAI for a ticket to attend the event. It's on Thursday, July 25th at 7 p.m. at Symphony Space in Manhattan on West 95th Street. WBAI presents Dr. Gary Knoll in conversation with Leonard Lopate. You'll also get a sneak preview to Gary's new film. Go to give to WBAI.org to order your ticket or call 516-620-3602 for a ticket to The Conversation Thursday, July 25th at 7 p.m. See you there. 